Good to see you all this morning. So the topic that I've uh, picked up on today is environmental ethics. And uh, I know that Keith finished his uh, series on social justice. Um, perhaps this could tie in with it, perhaps not. And that's sort of the one of the questions we'll have for us today. But when we talk about environmental ethics, uh, what, what comes to mind for you guys? What things do you think of? Stewardship of the earth. Stewardship of the earth, okay. Now, is, who, who does that stewardship fall on, Ed? <laughs> okay, define us. Believers, unbelievers. Okay, so it's probably a creation mandate, right? Something that is universal. Okay, so to be stewards of the earth, we're going to assume. Okay, what else comes to mind? How about if I said the word environmentalism? Make it an ism, make it an ideology. That might get you rattle your cage a little bit, right? Idol worship, okay. So maybe a temptation for some people, um, if they look at their environmental ethics and their concerns for the environment, it might be that they end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. That's a legitimate concern, right? So maybe, uh, you know, it could become, maybe you could be so focused on the creation that you fail to see the creator, right? Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, um, so there's obviously the, the worship of the creation, but then John Calvin says that creation is the theater of God's glory, right? It is the place where you go and you hang out and you go, wow. This is showing me the glory of God, although it's not coterminous with God and His glory. It's a picture. It's a reflection. It's an image of, not image so much, but it shows us the glory of God. And so, you know, these guys, they're onto something when they're enamored with the beauty of creation, but the fact that they worship it is, of course, wrong. It's idolatry. Yes? Okay. Certainly, and I mean this is with with anything. Awareness on any subject is certainly going to, you know, you know, there's in, in my daily life and my job. I mean, one of the biggest things is I'm just ignorant of a lot. Okay. I'm going to put awareness in the middle here. Um. How about as a believer, if you were going to develop your ethics for why you should or shouldn't be uh, environmentally concerned, what field would you, what soil would you go farming in? What would you go looking for? Christian doctrines, for example. What would enable you to have a, a reasoned 
approach to having an environmental ethic. Okay. Okay. So subdue. So creation mandate, right? Okay. And then we'll get in discussions to subdue, equal, rape, pillage, those kinds of things. Which is, you know, hey, Lynn White in 1968, Lynn White throws down the gauntlet. And some of you older folks might remember this. Um, he, he says that Christianity is necessarily not compatible with caring for the environment because you're called to subdue the earth. And subduing the earth necessarily is rape, pillage, and spoil, right? Um, so, you know, he's thrown down the gauntlet right there saying, look, you Christian guys, your whole narrative of the creation story, the redemption story, and you all got a, you know, an exit ticket because you're going to heaven. You don't care about creation. Um, so that's sort of the gauntlet there being thrown down. Um, okay, so... The, Yeah, the idea that we image God, right? We image God as a verb. God in the creation week goes from chaos, disorder, to what do you have at the end of the week? You have a beautiful, organized creation where things are all in their place. Okay? And by the end of creation, you know, in the middle of the creation week, we even see that God's letting providence start taking control and things, you know, happen. Um, so we're to actively pursue increasing degrees of order, right? And so that, if we image God as a verb and we take the creation account seriously, um, we're going to see that, hey, subduing the earth doesn't mean spoiling it, destroying it. Okay. Right. So there's, and we're going to get to that a little bit. You know what? Uh, what I hope not to do today is walk, make you guys walk out of here feeling like, well, I need to, uh, you know, do what Elder Dan says concerning the environment. What I do hope you do is say, what's the Bible going to have me do? Because well, we'll talk about, you know, the, the sort of levels of, since, levels of seriousness this topic's at. Uh, but we're not there yet. What other soil would you use? So we've got the creation mandate of subdue the earth. We've got the image of God as a verb. Um, how about this one? Common grace. The idea that this earth does need to continue until the elect are pulled out from the four corners of the earth, that it needs to continue. And back to this idea that believer and unbeliever alike, we need to uh, work towards uh, some sort of, you know, uh, care for the creation, some sort of stewardship, uh, it's going to be rooted in the idea that, hey, we need to make sure that we can all share this planet because it has a purpose. Yeah, Ralph. Okay. We're not on the climate yet. We'll get there. And everything in the world, every little detail is run by God, you know, or allowed by God. And so this idea that 
electricity, or we're going to stop oil consumption. Right. It's just, it's it's secular humanism off the charts. It is is totally godless. It is just wrong. And it totally undermines the sovereignty of God. God will not allow anything in this world that he doesn't want to happen. True. Are, are, are we responsible, though? Are we responsible? Is there some human agency where we need to... Well, you have to go back and say, how much does God control every little detail? Every bit. That you can go out and do things that God doesn't authorize. Is right. God responsible for the fact that I drove my car here today, that I bought a Dodge? Well, the fact that you bought a Dodge endears you to my heart, but... Yeah. So... Right, so there's that tension. There's human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Um, we're we're, we're going to get to this issue in, in a bit, okay? I was hoping you'd go there, though. Um, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Yeah. Um, so, we're, we're going to get to the post guys, too. So, um, some of these, the, my basic argument I'm going to lay before you today and uh, my basic argument is going to be this. These are the two fundamental fields that we're going to mine from when we talk about the environment or a possible way forward for Christian environmental ethics. So creation and the resurrection. Or, of course, the resurrection, of course, is pointing forward to the recreation of all things. So it's pointing towards heaven, right? And when I say heaven, of course, I'm talking about the new heavens and the new earth um, other, other fields, I don't know why I'm doing these in red, I guess because these are the ones we're going to talk about, is of course your eschatology. Um, what we think about one thing affects what we think about another, right? I'm, I'm sorry, what's your name? Rachel. Rachel, as Rachel was saying. If you're a dispensationalist, there's a good chance you're going to be like, it's all going to burn, you know, the rapture's going to happen any minute now, so getting my car smogged isn't high on my priority list, right? <laughs> Those kinds of thoughts, okay? Um, but we're going to look at, uh, you know, some possible post-millennial arguments for sort of reasons why you'd look at uh, how your eschatology would influence your environmental ethics. Before we get into all that, I just want to throw this out. So, this stuff that we're talking about um, is something I would probably put in the bin of what we call adiaphora, okay? Calvin, when he was talking about the reality that, wow, Christians don't agree on everything. And Calvin's answer was, now, you know, some people, well, Calvin's going to, like, start lopping people's heads off. Survey this, right? Well, let's be clear about this. One, Calvin didn't lop his head off. Calvin, you know, pleaded with the guy to change his mind. Um, but sure, that was the world in which Calvin lived, and people did go to, go to their death for heresy, okay? It's not like he would have been treated any better anywhere else in Europe. Servetus, that is. But uh, here's where Servetus was. Servetus was doubting something that was essential for salvation, okay? He denies the Trinity. And the guy went to his death for that. I'm not defending that. I don't think that's good. I don't think... I think John Locke was right in his letter concerning toleration. Concerning matters of religion, some people are right, some people are wrong. Maybe there's a heaven, maybe there's a hell, maybe you're going, maybe I'm not. But let's not kill each other over it. That's his basic thesis, right? Not killing each other over religion's a good thing, okay? Um, so, that's... <coughs> My sidetrack on Calvin and Servetus, sorry. 
Calvin's argument about like levels of sincerity or severity with truth is that there are those things that are essential. These are dogmas that are definitely required. You must believe this or you're not a Christian. Okay? And so what do we put in this bucket? You guys know this stuff. The Trinity, right? The incarnation. And all the five fundamentalists, you know, five fundamentals, you know, the fundamentalists came up with in the, you know, and then that's helpful. Um, these are essential things. But then Calvin says there's things that are important. And Calvin says things that are important is if you read it in your Bible, if God took the time to think that it was worth recording, it's important. Anything taught in scripture is important. Now, between these two, there's a little bit of fuzz, though. It's kind of fuzzy. And then there's the third category, which Calvin would call adiaphora. And oftentimes we'll associate this term with the Lutherans. Um, but when we say adiaphora, we're saying something that is indifferent. Okay? It's not explicitly taught in Scripture. Okay? You're not required to believe this, right? Um, now, sometimes people have discussions. Is, is this something that's considered important or is it something that's indifferent? Is it adiaphora or is it important? And so one of the thoughts I want you to think about today is, where do our environmental ethics fall, right? Is this something that's important? I'm going to submit to you today that there's a lot of scripture talking about these kinds of things. Or is it adiaphora? And there's going to be necessarily different viewpoints here, okay? Um, so that's just to throw that out. I don't want anybody walking home with their head hanging low, feeling bad about driving their Dodge truck. I drive one too, Ralph. Um, but to offset that, the wife drives a Prius. Um, <laughs> kidding. Um, but uh, the uh, no, but I mean these these are these are things that Christians can legitimately uh, disagree about. Okay, but the fact that you know Scripture talks about some of these issues, we need to be concerned about it. Does that mean that we should start a study committee at the PCA and say, hey, we need to have a study committee for how the church should treat the environment? Should we go ahead and should we update the Westminster Confession? <laughs> you laugh. But several churches have done that, okay? And uh, personally, I don't think we should be there yet. But it is, if it's revealed in Scripture, it's something we need to talk about, something we need to think deeply about, okay? But no, I don't think we need to run and update our confessions. So uh, environmental ethics, and basically this is just me presenting a paper I did a long time ago. Um, it's really become kind of a mainstream thing. Uh, in many of the uh, you know uh, mainstream churches, it's something that they've adopted. They've started committees. They've started writing things about this. Um, Christian environmentalism's kind of become mainstream. But my concern is that a lot of the stuff that we see uh, isn't arguing biblically. Um, and, and you guys know this from experience. You know, you're Presbyterians. And so when you tell someone you're a Presbyterian, what do they automatically assume? Oh, your pastor must be a woman. Or, you must lay hands on women for deacons and, and elders, right? Those kinds of thoughts always come. Oh, you guys are great. You just ordained gays, right? And we're like, no, 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 no. We're kind of like, yeah, we're kind of like John Calvin type Presbyterians. We're like the real deal, right? Um, and, and so within Presbyterianism, you know, from the 1920s definitely on, you look at how you go find out whatever the liberal branch of uh, politics happens to be at the time. Um, and whatever's new and exciting that's going on, today it would be whatever's happening at the Democratic National Convention. Um, you go look at what's going on there, and then you go to the PCUSA, 
the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America or the United Methodist Church or the Evangelical or especially Liberal Church of America. I meant Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Um, all of those major denominations, um, you look at what they're concerned about, and it's exactly what the culture is worried about, okay? Pretty much. Um, and I, I hope, no, I'm not being ungracious. That's just true, okay? Um, and so there's this real attempt to outwoke the Democratic National Convention amongst the mainline churches. And one of those platforms, of course, is the environment, okay? And, you know, lots of the concerns that Ralph brought up, you know, those, that's the, that's the shtick. You know, hey, man-made global warming is it. We can show it without a shadow of a doubt, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. Well, so my concern here is that those guys, when they, when those churches make those statements, they might be looking at biology. They might be looking at science. They're probably looking at what's called the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, right? The spirit of the age is what's ruling their results on those. But my question is, is as believers, as people who have a high view of Scripture, how should we view the Bible on this issue, right? I mean, that's our standard. Certainly, we do need to look at the science. Certainly, we do need to examine those things because, hey, guess what? God's created realm is clear, okay? God's created realm is clear. It's there for all to see, Scripture says, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. So we should look at it. But much like... These guys are often wrong at interpreting scripture. Hey, on occasion they're right. Broken clock is right twice a day, right? They do bear the image of God. Don't assume they have nothing useful to say. Um, but just like they can get scripture wrong and we can get scripture wrong, sometimes our interpretations of the data in the world is wrong too, right? What we call the noetic effects of sin, the effects of sin on our minds, on our thinking process, on our reasoning and capabilities, it is affected by sin and sometimes we get it wrong. So a little bit of humility and being able to say, hey, let's do our homework here uh, will serve us well. So I'm going to set out first uh, to give a sharp critique of th there are some real theologically motivated works on environmentalism. And I'm going to go and just say I think their view of eschatology is wrong. Um, I know that usually when we have Sunday school, I, Mark Anderson is really gracious. I'm an amillennialist. I'm not going to apologize about that. And if you're post-mill, you'll still hate the post-mill that I talk about, so we're all going to be good today. Um, now, uh, I think that you know some of, some of the more theologically oriented arguments for earth care are really ill-founded, and so we'll look at that. And then I'm going to set forth a positive environmental ethic, and the ethic I'm going to suggest is based on creation and resurrection or heaven. Okay? So... I'll start out with uh, sort of a summary of the literature up until now. We're told by our environmentally-minded Christian brethren that we should be looking now on the basis of the work of Christ for substantial healing in every place affected by the fall. And this is a quote from E. Calvin Beisner, a guy that I've learned a lot from and appreciate. Um, e. Calvin Beisner says, look, we ought to expect, if we truly believe in the transforming power of Christ in the lives of the redeemed and through them on the cultures in which they live, we ought to expect an increasing reversal of the effects of the curse. We ought to expect a progressive transformation that parallels the growth, both intensive and extensive, of Christianity through the centuries. So you can see there's you know, a strong dose of Kuiper here, right? There's this uh, you know, uh, 
sort of uh, post-millennial expectation for things to get better. Okay. While babe, now don't get Beisner wrong. Beisner is not. Uh, he, he's not a. He's a supernaturalist. Beisner's a good guy. But this is what he says. While biblically sound social analysis repudiates the secularist ideology of in inevitable progress, um, nonetheless, the Christian doctrines of creation, fall, curse, redemption, and consummation equip us with a linear concept of time and a biblically grounded faith that God is indeed working in time and space to restore this fallen world and cursed world to glory. And we ought to see now, and we can see if we're looking, evidences of this in history. Okay, That's E. Calvin Beisner now. E. Calvin Beisner, he, he's a solid guy. He's, yes, Beisner, yeah. He used to work, he used to do some work for the Christian Research Institute. I think for a while he taught at Covenant College. He's, he's a solid brother. Um, now, we're moving, so this is someone who's, Probably post-millennial, I don't, it's been a long time since I've kept up on Dr. Beisner. Um, probably post-millennial, but definitely within the realm of orthodoxy, okay? Um, here's another quote from somebody that uh, shares sort of Beisner's post-millennial perspective, but also is uh, not as theologically attuned, I would say. This is another statement from... Uh, you know, one of the more popular thinkers. A new day is coming, and it reveals a new landscape. Christian thought and Christian practice will emerge again as the standard of moral excellence, not merely in theological journals, but also in public debate. The biblical principles of Christian environmental stewardship will again shape not only thought and principles, but the very policies of the land and resource management. And the day is coming when Christian scholars and scientists will build the graduate training programs at Christian colleges and universities that will produce a new generation of resource managers and policymakers, men and women who are not a compulsive careerists, but sacrificial stewards, biblically informed, morally responsible, and passionately devoted. It is their voices and lives that will shape the future of ethics, policy, and management of God's creation. Welcome to the new world. Now... I want to submit to you, and you know, when we talk about Kuyperianism, uh, okay, now Kuyper, of course, is the one who famously said, not one square inch is there of all creation that Jesus Christ does not claim mine, right? And certainly I think that's true, and everybody could agree on that. But Kuyperianism has developed so that there's what I would like to call, or actually Celia Irons calls, Kyperianism of the left and Kyperianism of the right. Okay? Kyperianism of the right would be typically, you know, we see this come to flourish in theologians like Rush Dooney, Bonson, Gary North, these kinds of guys. Okay? So Christian Reconstructionism. Uh, Kyperianism of the left is something you'll probably find in these kinds of denominations where, hey, we're going to seek to get the glory, the authority, the stamp of approval from Jesus and then get everything that the zeitgeist says that we want and pack it up over here, okay? And so th those are sort of, Kuyper, Kuyper's been taken in, in two directions there. And I, so I gave you an example of probably a Kuyperianism of the right and then an example of Kuyperianism of the left. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So theonomy is synonymous with Christian Reconstructionism. Um, 
And it's interesting in the political realm, right? When the religious right speaks, it's like, oh, keep your religion out of things. But then when we get someone that's a Kuyperian from the left, we're like, oh, God bless you. This is wonderful. It's kind of interesting. Um, all right. So here's the question, though. This new world touted by the last author, it's certainly not the new heavens and the new earth. It's rather a polished present world. And so the environmental glad tidings which they bring is a triumphalist transformationalism supposedly promised via the redemption accomplished by Christ. So this takes us to our next consideration. next consideration is, does Christ promise substantial healing? Okay, Does Christ's work of redemption guarantee substantial healing? And one of the things that I really appreciate about these two authors um, is that they have a really good appreciation for the extent of the atonement. Okay. Now, as Reformed people, when we talk about the extent of the atonement, we always go to, like, L on our tulip, right? Limited atonement. It's limited to the elect. But actually, the extent of the atonement in terms of, you know, Romans 8 is what? The creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God and the recreation of all things and the ensuement of the new heavens and the new earth, right? So in that sense, they've got it right, right? They're it is true that the redemption that Christ has wrought will usher forth a new heavens and a new earth. It will make all things right. Now, I really appreciate them pointing that out. And they're correct in asserting that. Now, although we can appreciate this contribution of these writers, I, we need to be critical of their view because they're saying that Right now, in the newspaper, we should be able to see, hey, the world's getting better, right? Um, in, in terms of environmental issues. And, you know, maybe you could make that argument. But to say that, you know, this is a guarantee of the redemption wrought by Christ, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that this is uh, too little too early, you might say. In the Bible's eschatology, there's two ages that are set forth, right? There's this present evil age, which is, you know... Uh, it's going to succumb to uh, the principle of de decay, right? And then there's this future heavenly age to come. The time that Christians are to hope for is the time of the appearing of the Lord Jesus. At that time, there will be a full redemption of God's creation. Until then, these last days of the present evil age will be characterized by suffering saints and a travailing creation, both of which are groaning for complete redemption, man and creation as a whole. The hope that the creation has is the same as our hope, the coming of the blessed Lord and the renewal of all things. Therefore, all talk of a guaranteed substantial healing being promised by the redemptive work of Christ, this side of glory is ill-founded. And we'll look at their basic arguments why in a bit. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yes. I would say that would be probably a semi-eschatological expectation, kind of like when Paul in Ephesians 2 says but that we're seated in the heavenlies. Go back and, there, and, and he's talking about a time before death ceases where the lamb and the lion, the wolf, not the lion, right. lie down and all these wonderful things do. So, and, and the other thing, and, and, and I honestly, I think eschatology and this argument of eschatology is totally unnecessary and causes a lot of problems because at the end of the day, God's going to do what he's going to do and we're going to do what God wants us to do. 
Christmas shapes. Oh, the world's so terrible. Right. Well, hey, listen. It's a lot better than it used to be. Go, go back 100 years. I mean, we are living in the most wonderful age of all. People are living long. I mean, the fact that you can go to the 99 cent store and eat better than a medieval king for five bucks is unbelievable. Yeah. Ralph, I'm gonna, we're gonna move on. You judge my eschatological argument when I'm done. Um, so, where were we? Um, so, my just argument is, this argument of substantial healing of this side of glory, uh, is ill-founded. Complete redemption, uh, is the hope that is not seen in the present age. If it were something that we could witness in the history of the present evil age, it wouldn't be a hope at all. Okay? So, but where do these guys, when they do make these arguments, where do they get their arguments? So, a favorite bed of scripture from which Christian environmentalists like to mine for their ecologically friendly concepts is theocratic Israel's ceremonial and civil laws. Prominent amongst those, of course, is the idea of giving the earth land Sabbaths, right? Now, we know, of course, that if you till a field and you keep planting the same thing, it depletes those nutrients and we need to mix things up, right? Letting the land lie fallow is a good thing. Now, there's certainly some common sense uh, to that argument. However, if you look at Israel, what's being promised to Israel when they let the land lay fallow? Okay, They're being promised that there's going to be a bumper crop and everything's going to be fine and they're going to be provided for. And so, you know, keep in mind, this is the Israel that had manna from heaven. This is the Israel that had, uh, you know, a pillar of fire. There's a supernatural realm. The, the covenant that God made with Israel where God promises to take care of them, and it's all a picture of heaven, right? It's the idea that God is going to provide for you apart from the fruit of your labor, apart from the sweat of your brow. That is, you know, reversing the curse. All that stuff, of course, does that apply to us? If you're a farmer and you say, hey, this seventh year, I'm going to leave the landline follow. Are you going to expect that field to produce a bumper crop for you as a result? No. Now, of course, it is a good idea to let it lie fallow, to let the land heal. Um, but no. So when these guys go, go pulling up like, hey, if we just followed the biblical model, right, we're going to take Leviticus 25 as the biblical model for how I should farm, um, is that really going to uh, bless them? I would suggest it's going to make you starve. Um, now, so, no, really, the implication of these authors is that if you just keep the Jubilee and land Sabbaths, we'd enjoy the Jubilee as God intended. And my point there is, is God had a special deal with Israel, right? And, and this makes me worried about, you know, people who are really strong on the Christian America thing. And I'm going to get hate mail on this one. Guys, God has not made a covenant with America. God has blessed America. We have a wonderful theistic tradition that's influenced our country. But that does not mean that God said, I'm, I'm going to transfer the covenant that I made with Israel over to America, and it's going to work just fine and dandy. No, it doesn't work that way. By the way, have you ever noticed someone who would pick up and say, hey, we're Ichabod? No, they always say we're Israel. That's kind of fascinating. Um, so <laughs> so the, the, this assumption that the ceremonial and civil aspect of God's law remains for us today lacks a covenantal groundwork from which to assert it. Okay, God didn't make a covenant with us. Throw in there, you know, our confession says things like, hey, the civil and ceremonial aspects of the law, they're been ab not abrogated, but they have been, what's the word? Yeah, abrogated, have now been abrogated under the New Testament. And uh, there we go. And that says that the, the judicial laws have expired together with the state of that people. So let's not pick that up and imagine that it's just going to, we're going to transplant it into the Americas. It doesn't work. 
Um, so you're like, okay, so if we've gotten out of the way of sort of this necessary idea of progress being associated with our view of environmental ethics, and if we've gotten rid of the idea that we're going to look at Old Testament Israel as the source of our environmental ethics, where does that leave us? Creation. As we got to earlier when Rachel brought up, you know, this idea that we image God as a verb. The pattern that we see when Adam is plopped in the garden is he is put there to tend and keep, right? So tend, of course, is to work the field. Keep is shamar. It's a, it's a verb that means to guard, right? So Adam is put in the garden to guard the glory of God's holy temple, right? And that's the imagery that we have in the garden. I can't prove that to you right now. But um, he's to guard the glory of God's temple. And he's to continue to be like God. And if we understand Adam, hey, check it out. What does God do right after he creates Adam? He says, hey, Adam, I got a job for you. What's Adam do? He names the animals. Hey, guess what God did all throughout creation week? You read your Bible. And it was evening and it was morning, the first night. God called this. God called this. God names things. Adam names things. Okay? God makes Adam. God makes all things. And then God says to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Adam, you participate in making. Adam, you create. Adam, you name. Adam, you guard and keep the garden. Okay, So the pattern that we see here is that from less organization to greater organization should be expected of the creature. Okay, So I think a really strong argument for how we should understand our creation ethics is that we appreciate what creation is that we don't knowingly go out of our way to screw things up, okay? Um, okay, Oliver O'Donovan, and this is, uh, that was really summarized. Um, Oliver O'Donovan argues that the resurrection, however, is probably the best field for which the Christian could mind their environmental ethic. And so here we go. This is Oliver O'Donovan in a book called uh, Resurrection and Moral Order. An Evangelical Outline for Ethics. It's a good book. Um, he notes that had there been no resurrection of Christ, it might have been possible for someone to wonder whether creation was a lost cause. If the creature consistently acted to uncreate itself and with itself to uncreate the rest of creation, did this not mean that God's handiwork was flawed and beyond hope of repair? It might have been possible before Christ rose from the dead to answer in good faith, yes. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. That fact rules out those other possibilities. For in the second Adam, the first Adam is rescued. So the first, so the resurrection of Christ in rescuing creation, it reaffirms the goodness of the creation ethic. Keep that in mind for when I'm preaching in a bit or, or exhorting you guys in a bit. The resurrection reaffirms the basic goodness of creation. Okay. And the creation ethic, while simultaneously inaugurating the kingdom of God, or heaven, and its ethic. But what are these respective ethics reaffirmed and affirmed in the resurrection of Christ? So, creation ethic, I already summarized for you. Um, yeah. Let's hit the heavenly ethic. The ethic of the kingdom of heaven, or the law of Christ, while retaining the core of the creation ethic operates under a different covenant, namely the covenant of grace. As such, it's not subject to the civil and ceremonial baggage of the law under the old covenant. The ethic of the kingdom does not decrease the responsibility of the creation ethic. Rather, it is an increase in responsibility because it gives more concrete applications of the law. You guys know Jesus when 
He meets people on the Sermon on the Mount. He says things like, I say to you, whoever even looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Plus, rather than being a works covenant, which we're bound to fulfill upon pain of death, it's the law of freedom or the law of Christ written upon our hearts, according to James. This law is the modus operandi, or the way in which we do things for the Christian, because it's an expression of God's nature and the reality of the heavenly seated, redeemed man's image likeness to God. That is, we do this because this is who we are and what we were recreated to do. Okay, In creation, I know some of us might be uncomfortable, but hey, in, in recreation, we're recreated what? In the image of Christ. To be like whom? So how would Christ treat the earth? Those kinds of questions. Ooh, the what would Jesus do question, right? Now, this is Adiaphora. We don't see a whole lot of... Yeah, I guess we could talk about calming, storming seas and moving on. I shouldn't have joked about that. There's a, I guess, yeah. All right. Um, again, this is, we see this in the model of our Lord. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, consistently placed the presently invisible things of heaven before men. In the Gospels, Christ gives us proleptic, that is, forward-looking signs of what the kingdom is like. Here's a few of these signs. Jesus cleanses a leper in Mark 1. He heals a nobleman's son, John 4. He heals a paralytic, John 5. He heals a blind man, John 9. And, of course, Lazarus' resurrection in John 11. We see that in all of these miracles, he is bringing new life. And it's brought to the forefront of all these miracles. In these signs, we see Jesus reversing the curse by his powerful word. These signs are, essentially, an intrusion of the age to come, attesting to the veracity of Christ's person, origin, and kingdom. Now, if we Christians are called to walk as Jesus walked, and we are called to do that, 1 John 2, 6, it is consonant with our profession to show the world what our hidden heavenly homeland is like by our lifestyle, just as Jesus did. Paul admonishes, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things of God, not on the things of the earth. Now, in seeking these things that are above, we too will give forward-looking signs of what the kingdom of heaven is like through our ethics in our day and age. And this should be manifest in the way that we treat the environment. Now, as Christians, we must remind ourselves, when we speak, we don't refer... I mean, there's nothing sinful when we refer to the environment... But what does that term do? When we refer to everything, oh, the environment, the environment, the environment. It takes God out of it, right? It assumes we live in a... So, you know, for the Christian, we think first and foremost about creation. It's in relation to the creator, okay? And that word carries a lot of baggage with it, okay? There's a creator-creation distinction, right? And if we're part of that creation... We have responsibilities to pursue from less order to greater order. That's upon us, okay? Our whole mindset is cast from a different mold than the one set before us by our pagan environmentalist friends. We're concerned with the defacing of God's creation. This human defacing of God's creation is often justified by modern economics, science, and technology, but we need to ask questions, right? Is such justification valid? 
we'll see how the creation ethics of heaven and uh, how the ethics of heaven and creation answer a resounding no. While at the same time, it could provide real hope for substantial healing of creation. So we don't have a lot of time. Um, is it possible that Francis Schaeffer he wrote a book called uh, Pollution and the Environmentalism, the Pollution and the Death of God? I don't anybody remember the name of that book? been a long time since so I read it. I probably have it back here. Um, Schaefer argues there, pollution and the death of man, the Christian view of ecology. I, I would have said maybe a Christian view of ecology. I guess Schaefer is arguing that this issue is probably more here. Okay? And maybe in Schaeferite fashion, maybe even there. Who knows? But um, I'm keeping on the lowdown here. I, I'm thinking we're somewhere in between here when we talk about our environmental ethic. Um, because there's a lot that goes on here when, when we parse this out. But Schaefer made a useful analogy. He said that there is room for, I don't know if I spelled that right, cobaliger, no, whoopsie. Er, and C, there we go. Cobaligerency, and that's a G, sorry. Um, that is the idea that, hey, uh, these guys might be my ideological enemies because they're idol worshippers, and they are. And we might be their ideological enemies because, hey, Lynn White said that we are. Um, maybe as someone who shares a common creation, can we look for ways in which, as far as our conscience permits, that we could find ways to go forward and pursue similar things? Okay? And that's where it gets sticky, and this is, you know, you know, my day job is I teach you know, the U.S. Constitution and we talk about politics and I'm officially neutral because it's my job, but I think it's also great because I don't want people to kill each other. It's so much better than civil war. Um, so, um, and I, re I believe that, I mean that. I think it's a great calling that I have in that regard. Um, are there places where these opposing camps can find some agreement? You know, Ralph brought up global warming. I would suggest avoid that language. Could, could you get people on this side to think about things that might be good for a clean environment? They're, they're, we might not agree on that issue ever, right? And personally, my personal view is uh, it doesn't matter really, but um, I, I think global warming is a thing. However, the issue for me is can you put a, and, and Ralph hit the nail on the head, right? man-made global warming, is, is that everything that it is, right? And I think if you put it all in that bucket, I think you're claiming to know something that's unknowable, right? The science on that is really hard to know as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I've, you know, I studied with some really sharp guys in Korea, and I taught them English, and they convinced me of the general thesis. I think it's, it's sound. Now, that is this, okay? Don't walk away. Well, my elder said that global warming is man-made cause. Yeah, how much of it is man-made cause? I have no idea, okay? There's enough evidence to suggest the Earth's done this many times over, right? By the way, this is officially not Bible study talk. This is definitely Adiaphora stuff. But here's the question. Guys, you live in a world, you share a world, in the common grace realm where God is successfully pulling the elect out of the four corners of the Earth. you got to talk to these guys. you got to talk to them, okay? Can you find some place of, hey, you know, Ralph, you like fishing. 
Do you like clean lakes or dirty lakes? I think you're a river fisher, right? Yeah? Wrong question. So, but I mean, you guys drink water. Yeah. I don't control whether the lake is Okay, if you dump your RV in it, if you dump your RV in it, do you contribute? But you're responsible for what you do. And you have explicit commands from God for what you could do. So you don't kill, you don't go kill your neighbor. As a Calvinist, you don't think God micromanages your life. I know God micromanages my life, but I know that God... So, you, you, okay, is, is God responsible for your sin? Did God create your sin? I don't think anybody, I think Paul's got the answer for it, right? In Romans, like, you know, what if God, you know, but at the end of the day, we're held accountable, okay? And I'm not going to point the finger at God and say, well, you made me this way. Absolutely. But we're, and, and so when you woke up and decided this morning whether you're going to have coffee or tea, did you have some freedom in that regard, in, in that your, your thought processes? I have a sovereign God, but I don't have access to that realm, that knowledge. Let me, let me tell you how I can come to terms with God micromanaging our lives, okay? Okay. God, with the DNA in us, and he knows us so well, and he knows we'll buy the green car instead of the I don't think anybody disagrees with that. It's just the issue is, is we're, we're, we're responsible, okay? And so when we make, you know, conscious, aware decisions... Definitely strapped to our nature. We're sinners. We can't do anything but sin. Um, and as redeemed people, we do have the ability to obey on occasion. Um, where, where do we as uh, people, we, ha- we sit in two kingdoms, right? We exist in the city of man and in the city of God. We breathe air from both of those kingdoms. And the question is, how can we pursue co-belligerency? And, you know, this is a... Now, there are some. Uh, in 1920, in the Christian Reformed Church, this was the big hot topic, okay? And this is where Herman Hooksema and others, like, jumped ship from the, from the CRC, because the CRC was really holding to a clear doctrine of common grace, okay? And so I, there was a minister in the OPC when I was under care of that denomination that he denied common grace. He said, there's only one grace I know, and that's saving grace, right? Um, but, you know, in this common grace realm, how do we as people who know that God has a plan, God is sovereign, controls all things, he's got his elect from four corners of the earth, in due time he's going to call them out. Um, how do we live a life in a world with our environmental ethic? And I I don't have anything to pontificate for you. Yeah, Ed. I grew up in Los Angeles. My chest would hurt in the Even though there's millions more cars, millions more people, much more fuel being burned, it's cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's my one. Ex- that's, I have to bring examples of good regulations. I think that's one of them. Yeah. That's all the time we got today. I apologize. There's more we could do. Um, the. Uh, This is your father's world, okay? You are seated in heaven. 
you need to reflect that ethic in ways that you think are appropriate. There's necessarily... Now, is it possible that in the life of the church, as we study the scripture, is it possible that we could move and... You know, I'm uncomfortable with... I, I think this is totally something we should be indifferent about. Okay, But maybe there's a day when the church will get a clear understanding. Okay, it's Because just like with... Uh, natural revelation, we get that wrong sometimes. Sometimes we get special revelation wrong. Okay, But what we do need to watch out for is in our interpretations of things like this, that we don't take the zeitgeist. We don't take the spirit of the age. We don't read the newspaper and let that decide what our view on these issues has to be. Okay, All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we give thanks for the resurrection of Christ and that in his resurrection... It affirms the essential goodness of your creation, and we look forward to a day and an age when the recreation of all things will make things beautiful, that you will dry every tear. Father, we pray for this time that you'd help us to be faithful in the now, that we would remind ourselves of who we are, that we live in creation, that we have a creator God, that we're made in his image, and that uh, we have a responsibility to show the earth what the beauty of our Creator is like. So forgive us of our sins and make us useful to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.